Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin Ware here, Electronically Yours, as always. Today's very interesting interview is with a guy called Ned Augustenborg, who has made a really good documentary, which is just about to be released, about a guy called Don Lewis, who's a visionary who invented the live electronic orchestra device, which is a bunch of different technologies all connected together. This is all pre-MIDI. Uh, he's an electronic music pioneer. And um, reading from the from the stuff it says here, it says, whose musical genius and technological vision personified both the creative freedom and the institutional fears that defined the music industry during the 1970s and 1980s. It delves into the life and times of an African-American who was unwilling to sacrifice his own curiosity in his pursuit to change the world's musical landscape. He had, a, uh, as is shown in the actual documentary, if you get a chance to see it, he had a great relationship with the guy who ran Roland. Ikutaro Kakehashi. Yeah, and they had a really amazing kind of, not only professional uh, relationship, but a, uh, a, a, a really deep friendship. And they kind of complemented each other because Roland were busy building a new kind of technological fan base and they needed an insight into the musical um, perspective on it. And um, Don came up with lots of ideas for them and was heavily involved, for instance, in the creation of the TR-808 drum machine. Uh, you'll hear all about it in the interview. Here he is, Ned Augustenborg. Start at the beginning. Um, how did you get involved with this project? What, what, where's the? Is it a passion project? Is it? Was it? Well, it's it's definitely a passion project. Actually, it dates back to my to my youth. You know, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, and you know, I was an avid network TV watcher, as most of the country was, and I was hearing synthesizers, you know, more and more on TV shows, theme songs, things like that. And I was just so curious, what's making me sound, you know? And uh, so it actually kind of started then, and as I got older and I eventually, you know, got in the business, I always thought there had to be some place for a documentary on the history of synthesizers and, and how they came about. Uh, and, you know, a, a, a number have been produced and all of them seem to be geared toward a, perf a particular type of synthesizer or synthesizer maker. And uh, so having said that, um, out of the blue, you know, close to, close to 20 years ago when I was working for a cable operator uh, in, in the San Diego area, um, uh, I was I was an advisor for our for productions that were um, deemed worthy, you know, in, our, in the community that we were in. And in came uh, the, the director of the Museum of Making Music, which is funded by NAM. Right. And, and that that museum making music is just a few miles away from where I live and where I used to work. And uh, they told they were talking about this Don Lewis person coming in, bringing this instrument back, you know, after some 25 or 30 years. And and so the board was ready to vote on it. And I just sort of semi rudely interrupted. I said, look, I'll just give you my advice now. I said, not only should you approve it, I'll volunteer my time to make sure this works out fine. And so I called in some chips on people that would be favors and not knowing what was going to happen. And did a three camera shoot of this concert with the live electronic orchestra conducted and performed by this person named Don Lewis, who I'd never met 
thinking it might be maybe five minutes of this sort of pipe dream documentary that I just referred to. And then, so I had put together actually an hour documentary. It was kind of like, are you familiar with Martin Scorsese's uh, uh, documentary on the band when they had the yeah, last yeah, waltz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I thought it might be something like the last waltz minus, I wouldn't put myself in it like Scorsese. Mm. So, you know, it took me a few months to get that going because I was running in the news department. I had all those other things going on. So Don and Julie came in, lived in the Bay Area, came back down to take a look at it. And uh, I said, well, this is what I've done. And and I, I don't think we were more than three minutes into it. And I could see them. I was behind them as they were in the editing suite. And they started holding hands. And, and Don said, stop, stop the tape, stop the tape. And I said, <laughs> okay, I'm going, oh, God, they hate this. You know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Oh my, what are they going to criticize me about? And they were both crying. Oh. And they said, they said, we've never seen the Leo like this before. And this is just bringing up so many memories for us that we can't really even explain. And I said, oh, good. So you like it? And I said, yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. So anyway, what happened with that? I said, well, the good news is that you like it. I said, here's the bad news. I'm never going to air it. I said, I don't like it. So I said, what I'd like to do is talk to you folks, get to know you better, and maybe there's a potential for a documentary. So it took even a few years to even to get that movie. It was like a slow turn to get the momentum, but eventually, obviously, the momentum happened. So that's that's how it got going. And then when I met Don for the first time, it was the day after the concert. You know, we were like kindred spirits. I mean, Don and I just hit it off like that, but Don hits it off with everybody. You know, he's just such a passionate magnetic person you know yeah uh, such a sweet sweet character right it comes across in the documentary yeah and uh julie would always say you know i was cutting the piece she goes boy the camera sure likes don and i said well i don't know if it's so much the camera liking don as much as it is don liking the camera <laughs> <laughs> he just he knew what a great communications tool it was and don loved to communicate with people so yeah so tell me, right, I mean, for podcast listeners, um, unfortunately, Don passed away in 2022. Yeah. Which is tragic, really, because he never got to see the fruit of all your labors. And Well, he did. I mean, he saw the, PB, uh, he saw the PBS version before it aired on PBS. That was right. a short version. Right. Um, and, you know, he was intimately involved with, with, I would always send them rough cuts of sequences and scenes and things like that. But he would have loved to have seen this, this version, you know, and I still think of that because I'll, you know, I'll think of another way to communicate a scene or to recut a scene, you know, as long as I got my hands on it, I'm going to keep changing it. And I just still see myself calling a call Don saying, you're, oh, you're really going to like this because he loved technology, whether it was music or video or film, and uh, he'd get so excited about different things that were were uh, were developed regarding the film. So I I miss my friend. Oh no, that's it's so sad. But anyway, it's great that um, the leg his legacy is being documented in such a a fine way. And Thank you. Yeah, how, I mean, it's forgive me, I'm not an expert in your career, but uh, tell me about hey, what. Tell me about your history in documentary making. Uh, it's a very strange history. Uh, very early in my career, I blew out three documentary shorts. They were all a half an hour. Um, 
One was, the first one was on prison sites and how the state of California determines prison sites, wow. which, which is, was a conflict. It doesn't seem to be an issue anymore, I guess, because we're not putting anybody in prison anymore, but that's a whole other issue. But, um, and so that was called Neighborhood Behind Bars. And then I did another one, which was sort of a, a lighthearted look at Dr. Glenn T. Seaborg, who discovered the nine transuranium elements, you know, and was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission for 10 years. And wow. he's basically headed up the Manhattan Project. And he grew up in my hometown in South uh -huh. California, yeah, which is just, you know, about seven miles southeast of downtown Los Angeles. And, and he came for his 50th elementary school reunion. And I met him and I did a documentary on that reunion, which of course included, uh, you know, his his accomplishments as well as the reunion itself. And then the third one I did, which was the, the last one I did prior to this, was 1988-87, which was called "The Effect: A Band at the Beginning," which was about four teenage kids, Hispanic kids, that were heavily influenced by British rock, particularly yeah. the Stones, the Beatles, and the Clash. So it was kind of weird, you know, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they were talented kids. And I just found them, I was doing this show that was featuring uh, bands that were trying to get their careers going anyway. That's mm -hmm. how I met them. And uh, so I did a document that was well received. It was kind of a strange documentary, but uh, that was it. And I remember telling my co-producer, I said, if you ever hear me say, I'm going to do a documentary again, I, I said, just hit me in the <laughs> hard as you can okay <laughs> and of course you know here we go, here i went again and i was funny because i was so young and ignorant that 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 particular documentary on the band the effect took me 14 months and i thought that was slow back then and uh boy that was like oh you know now right <laughs> yeah. yeah filmmaking always astounds me what a laborious process it can be good it, and then, uh, well, uh, the only and the only uh, analogy I've got is, you know, making records. And back in the day, you know, maybe spend three, three at the most six months making a, a top quality album, and then right. the record company would turn around and go, "Oh, we're not going to release it for nine months." So I'm going, "What? I've just broken my balls." Oh right no! There. I could have taken as long as I wanted, or you know, I could, you know, ah. Uh, I never heard that perspective before. I always figured the record companies were beating you up to get you to produce another album, but oh, they I do, didn't. they did, they do do that. I'm talking about uh, being a third party producer for another album. Oh, I, I got you. I yeah, got you. Because there are so many wheels in motion, you know that you've got to, you know, what it's like making films is a similar process. Yeah, I, well, that was one of the beautiful things about this film is it was actually absent of a lot of that. I mean, I was really kind of on my own doing this and you know i wasn't working for a network i wasn't working for a station like the other three documentaries i did you know was sort of on the kind of on the clock of a a broadcasting entity so um i had to keep that in mind but uh, i learned a lot on those three documentaries i guess they were all for for this one so uh, it, it in some ways it's sort of scary knowing that you have complete creative freedom you know so I would I'd pull in the few people I trusted to, to watch scenes and I was pretty adamant about doing even though I hated it um test screens very early on right you oh know. god 
That must be that must be nerve wracking doing this. Oh, I hated it. I didn't even want to be there. I would sit. I literally on the test screens. I'd sit on the floor in the back of the theater, cowering, you know, waiting for people to start talking on their cell phones or walk out of the theater. But that fortunately never happened. But they're very valuable, you know, because there's as you notice in the film, uh, you know, there's a few. Uh, comic relief sections in there and you kind of get an idea you know people laughed at areas I thought were a little funny but I think they were that funny so you kind of recut <laughs> like breathing room for laughter and and I didn't expect people to cry and I mean that I guess that was the ultimate uh success for me personally is that people were crying and laughing all in you know an hour and a half you know so it, it was very fulfilling yet um like I like I said, not not something I enjoyed doing. All, all, all I can say is that as a, I mean, I've got an interest in the subject matter, obviously, but as a as a human story, I I found it in, extremely engaging. Oh, it's almost you. like uh, it, it it was reading to me almost like a work of fiction because it was so engaging, you know. Oh, uh, you. And I think. I'm not, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass, you know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think so. Let Let's go back anyway, and uh, uh, look at Don's career. And uh, how, how he's obviously a very smart, unusual young person when he was when he started out. And uh, the fact that he found his, he, he he found a slot to fit into that fulfilled both his geekiness and his creativity. Yeah, yeah right. Is quite astonishing. But he actually, I suppose, uh, carved out that that niche for himself. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's such an eccentric thing in those early days. It's very kind of Heath Robinson. You know, I mean, you look at his rig, and he's going. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> this no. is like this is really um uh like like bespoke, I mean put together on the fly. Mm -hmm. And uh it reminded me somewhat of um I don't know if you know about William Onyabor. No, I don't. You don't. Well he's a um he's another uh kind of maverick synthesist. Okay. Uh, but this time he was, I think, from Nigeria. And oh, okay. he, there's these little pockets of people doing incredible things around the world mm. at the same time. And that story's never been told. And I've I've just recently been talking to some potential filmmakers about doing a kind of international version of the kind of thing you've done with okay. Don, right? It, which is looking at the the uh, non-European, non non-white American... Uh, development of electronic music sure. and a lot of the time it was people making their own equipment and mm -hmm. um so his uh don's background uh academically was very technical wasn't it well it, uh yeah well you know the thing about don is he was really you know obviously born at the right time but he was also very lucky because we talked about this at length. Like I never had a, 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 a strong level of respect for the teachers that taught me going through, you know, K through five, junior high, high school. You know, there was a couple I liked, but they weren't really very good teachers. And Don just, you know, in Dayton, Ohio, 
it was unbelievable. I mean, the mentorship possibilities there. And I talked to him about it a lot because we would, you know, we'd talk about race and politics. Yeah, and yeah. Our, we didn't see eye to eye on some politics, so sometimes we had to back off on some things. But one of the things that I asked him, I said, I, I said, I, I got asked this question. I said, were your teachers on a mission to show white people that black people could be smart and productive as well? Was, were you, did you reap the benefits of that sort of competitive, I'm going to show you kind of attitude? He goes, absolutely. He said, you know, you know, like it was alluded to in the film, you know, they were rebuilding televisions and building radios and, and they, that, that high school he went to was, Dunbar, they wanted to unleash these African-American kids onto the world and have them make an impact. Cool. And so with that, in, in addition to it, the church, you know, because the church created the opportunity for him to get inspired by the organ. So as you know, if you're an organ player, you're used to using all your appendages, you know. Right. And then later on, Don decided to sing. He never really wanted to sing, uh, but people liked it when he did. So this multitasking aspect of his brain uh, was really well suited for the Leo because you, I mean, even if you, let's say you didn't even have that talent that Don Lewis has, which most people don't obviously, is you wouldn't think of creating the Leo because you wouldn't really think there's a need. And even if you thought there was a need, you didn't think you'd be able to take advantage of all of that technology in a live situation. But Don knew he could, you know, and, and it was this talent that motivated him to create the Leo because he knew if he could just break it down into fewer steps in terms of doing the levels and the balancing and maybe one less keyboard to deal with that he could create even a, a more robust sort of performance in a live setting. So. Uh, it was really his ability. Yeah, yeah, what's interesting to me is um, there's an element of the kind of sideshow thing about it. It's yeah, like, yeah. It, it's like I, I'm not being demeaning by saying oh, that. I know, yeah. It's like, it's like that kind of very showbiz mm -hmm. kind, almost Liberace-like yeah. kind of, look at what I can do <laughs> and I do it with a flourish. I mean, obviously, you know, the jackets with the keyboards on and all. I mean, that was kind of fun. Yeah, there was but, a fan. A fan made that for him and mailed it to him. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Well, under, underneath all that. So, like, there's several levels to this. So one is his obvious, you know, kind of musical talent and his keyboard playing. and But to actually juggle all those elements in his head simultaneously and vocoders and... Uh, the, just the imagination to understand uh, what is possible. Mm -hmm. Things that we all take for granted now. I mean, I, you know, in my studio and just so everybody else I know, we've all got Logic Pro or Pro Tools or whatever. We've all got a million virtual synths. We've all got, you know, we can do what we want. And it's a, pretty much a given that you can do it without very much effort either. Right. This right. is the exact opposite. This this there was there were there were no goalposts at that point you know i mean you've got people like um tonsa's expanding headband right you know uh, cecil and margalef and people like that who right. were kind of but the, you know and various other people but they all had big rigs yeah of of of, of commercially available equipment largely 
Yeah, uh, and that takes a lot of money, and that money comes from somewhere, right? It's not the average well, person can't do that shit. So no. this leads me back to Don. So tell me, I mean, there must be an economic imperative involved in all this as well. Well, it's uh, just I'm going to flash back a little bit because you you talked about the slideshow. Yeah, you know, there's a term that people would come up with when I was describing the film, and they said, "Oh, kind of like a one man band." And I hate that term, one man band, because it brings up a vision of a guy with a tambourine and cymbals yeah. in his ankles. And so I always try to avoid that. So I know what you mean. But as far as the economic aspect, that's one of the early questions I asked Don. I said, "How come you don't have a moat?" You know, and all yeah. that. He goes, "He's like, I couldn't afford it." Yeah. You know, they're so damn expensive, but everything else he got, he would get probably most of it for free, you know, because he was working with Roland. He was advising people. They'd give him, you know, beta tests, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And he goes, sometimes they wanted him back. Sometimes they wouldn't want him back or I make a deal with them because I wanted to keep it. And he goes, most of the time they didn't want it back because I'd already modified it so much. There was no reason for them to want it. No, no. I no, I'm in a similar situation. I create three-dimensional soundscapes and I Oh uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing it for twenty years and we do big art projects in museums and in oh, the, that sounds totally in the outside cool. world. I've done loads loads of stuff in, in the US. I even presented it to um to Disney and to DreamWorks about fifteen years ago and it is too far ahead for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now anyway, it's 3D sound. The Dolby Atmos is getting very popular now. So, yeah. well, then you must have enjoyed hearing John Chowning a little bit in the film. That was the kind of a, yes, yes. Know, what, a, what a sweetheart he is. I, exactly, and um, so I can imagine that if 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 uh, Don had grown up at this point, he'd be very into you know creating immersive sound experiences for his audience. Yeah, and you know, all the pro tools and all the, you know, he still was buying the technology. I mean, one of the things he wanted to do that we talked about and we didn't have time, uh, he wanted me to help him out with this in terms of however I could help him out, is he wanted to have sort of a, like a virtual Leo or a, you know, a, a, a Leo yeah. software, you know, and here it is, you know, with the whole setup there. It, my my problem with that was is well first of all and this is an ongoing issue that i'm trying to resolve with julie but i don't know if we're on the same page with it or not i have to talk to more about it is you know here is leo at the museum of making music on display for probably another five years i think is what the contract states is my guess at this point and uh it, it, uh, it works and Don maintained it and it's in perfect condition right now because Don would every few months come down here and he'd tweak it and, and, and maintain it. And I think it should be played, but yes. who, who the hell can play <laughs> it? <laughs> All right, I've got an idea for you. Just came, okay. just came to me. Yeah, you should go to the local college or um, music college or university and get some, make it into a, research project for for one of the for one of the students i agree and then, uh, uh, preferably a music college and then right. part of the whole thing is not only the maintenance but also the you know uh, somebody should be the lead person on on keeping alive the methodology of playing it and then yeah, that, can, I, that can be uh, taught like a manual and that can be the word can be preserved and spread that's the way yeah. that's what you should do 
I like I like that. And 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 it's it's sort of in a way like kind of up to Julie and you know that I'd really like to start some sort of a um, almost like an internship through the museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like a, like because, a found, almost like a foundation, really. Yeah, preserve the legacy. Yeah. Because that 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 is just a curio without it being played. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly it makes right. no sense to me. It's like it's like saying, "All right, well, here's Kraftwerk's studio, but nobody's interested in playing it anymore." You know. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's just a museum piece and it, it, preserved in aspect. You know, there's no right. point. No, there isn't. And, it's uh, a tool. It's a tool that deserves and needs to be played. Anyway, what do I know? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I, I, I it, it's on a, on a much more simplistic scale. It reminded me. I'm, I'm always been a golfer since I was a kid, and you know, I remember someone gave me these clubs, and they were a 1958 Wilson Staffs, are beautiful clubs. And, you know, they're 1958 clubs. And I finally ended up, you know, giving them to somebody because I see your know, golf clubs should be played. I mean, I, yeah. they're just to sit in my garage. Like, yeah, Absolutely. They, should, they should be used. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so when, when, how, what was it? Just going back a little bit, rewinding a little bit. Um, when do you think was this kind of epiphanal moment when he decided this is the, I want to create this. I, I I've got this messianic idea that I want to create this entire world of sound, and I can do it. You know, like an extended version of kind of cinema organists, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. What? You, what, what was Don's epiphany? You mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there was two. There was that. It's mentioned in the documentary where he had that dream. You know, that he envisioned himself on the church organ. You know, and he'd never felt anything like that before. So he was probably like 15 years old or something when that happened. Uh, speaking on behalf of Don, if you went later on into it, I, I think where he really started getting motivated is when he had the gumption, you know, to 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 move out of Denver, where he became very famous in Denver because he was the one of the most popular performers in the city is saying, well, I need to get to L.A. and I need to meet Quincy Jones. So he just went to Quincy Jones's house and knocked on his door, you know, and found him. And, As and, you did. Uh, you know, and then, and then prior to that, you know, he just happened to be playing in a little beach town in Los Angeles, and two of the Beach Boys were there, you know, and, and they go, well, this guy's really cool. We like this guy. So they <laughs> you open for us on our 74 tour, and will you play keyboards for us uh, along with it, you know? So... All of a sudden, boom, I mean, Quincy Jones and the Beach Boys, it doesn't get much bigger than that. You don't right? get much bigger than that, no. Yeah. So that I think that's where he was really feeling like he he was on to something. And people were desperately looking for people like Don to advise them on synthesizers because, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, Mr. Kakahashi alludes to, you know, it's hard to find somebody that has the musicality and the technical knowledge to be able thing. to talk yeah 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 and they they clearly have a very special relationship oh yeah i mean what are the odds of this guy from japan who had a a myriad of childhood illnesses and just happened to have the uh, the the energy to try to create a little organ store you know in japan and then don from dayton ohio what are the odds of them becoming best friends i mean it's very unlikely i mean that's a story in itself isn't it it is yeah and that could be like 
that could be a, a, a like a, a a kind of fictional film based on reality. Definitely, it's yeah. almost like it's almost like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you know Danny DeVito or something like, <laughs> that kind of level. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I mean that was a beautiful thing in the film as well. And the, what was also clear is the respect that everybody who was talking about Don had. Yeah. I know it's a film about him. They're not going to say, hey, he was shit. But, <laughs> yeah. but you can read it. You know, it comes across uh, to the audience. What so is how much they loved him and they loved his creativity and his, and his daring, his creative daring and, and technical daring. Yeah. Sure. Well, and they all had a common bond in that they... I'm not going to say they felt like they were in on the secret, but they knew Don never was never got the credit he deserved. So they were all anxious to share their relationship with Don Lewis. And that was one of the most rewarding parts. And, and this is where Julie Lewis was just fantastic. I mean, she was really the person that handpicked all these people in the film. She, she knew who to go to, as did Don. And, uh, you know, she set all those interviews up. And it was very emotional because in some cases, you know, she, they hadn't seen these people in 10, 15 years. And oh my God, I mean, the tears and the stories and, and, and the joy of just seeing these people getting together again. And, you know, everyone that's in the film is, are high achievers, intelligent, yeah. uh, interesting and communicative. So it was, uh, it was sort of like my opportunity to fuck up I, I kept telling myself because you go in and you interview somebody i mean you, you can definitely relate to this and you got a bad interview and you're trying to get something out of it but then when you get someone great you're going okay i can't fuck this up how do i make the most of this so <laughs> i always felt like i was having fun but at the same time i was under pressure to make sure i got the most out of it. well everybody. you definitely did yeah i mean you definitely got some fantastic evocative stuff i'd say as well as just yeah, yeah. and they're also credible you know that just uh... oh, totally credible i mean the the one one of the things that truly um uh fascinated me was the whole tr808 part of the story mm -hmm. it does a lot of people yeah and because it's such a given now. I mean, it completely transformed the world of popular and dance music, particularly emanating from America and then spread out across the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of a single piece of uh, of electronic equipment, I'd say the TR-808 is maybe the most ubiquitous of all. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what the sales figures are. You probably know better than I do. But uh, I, I, I know that... Um, you can still hear it today in a lot of uh, oh, yeah. a lot of stuff. Um, so I I've got a very interesting. I had a very interesting thought, which is you can't get much whiter than Mister Takahashi, right? So <laughs> white dude, right? That's pretty bluntly. Yeah, I, I can't imagine he grew up with a lot of soul <laughs> in his soul. Uh, well, not not the kind of soul that we as we understand it. Yeah, and I think there's something about the very soulful attitude of Don, and and obviously his musicality and his love of church, gospel, soul, R and B, whatever it is. Uh, that is a magic Venn diagram, which the bit in the middle is where the magic is. 
right? That's that's the way I'm viewing it. What's so I'm now happen? thinking, right? If he'd have got, if Donald had gone right from the outset and gone, I know, I mean, I'm, I know exactly the drum machine I want, but he didn't have contact with with the Japanese end of things, and he couldn't really make it happen. It could have easily been a fruit that didn't come to fruition. That's what I'm what? saying. Yeah. And it's this magic in the middle of these two worlds colliding, which just and the 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 um the the ramifications of it are so huge. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's almost apart from the obvious kind of uh, he didn't quite get his dues. We'll come on to that in a minute. But the uh, I think it's almost the biggest story of the entire documentary for me. Hey, you're talking about focus groups, on your focus group or whatever. It is. <laughs> no, I like that. Uh, but um, what do you think about that? What What's your opinion? On the well, well, the thing is, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know if I um, emphasize. I agree with you. It's just. Oh, I, no, I no, I agree with you big time. I, I mean, that's one of the like number of things that Don was really late in telling me about you know it's like what you know the 808 because you know one of the things i said i don't know if i emphasize that i mean he hounded mr k for decades about a programmable rhythm you know hounded it and hounded it and hounded really? it. oh yeah and, and mr k just didn't think it was going to make any money and it was something that maybe professionals would like and it wouldn't really sell because it's you know mr k's problem with don was don kept coming with ideas and and mr k put his business hat on go okay yes <clears throat> we could sell this to professional musicians kind of like how moog made money uh but there's not enough profit so uh these were no one wants programmable programmable rhythm unit because it'd be too difficult to operate so so when it, it 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 he finally got his way and kept pushing and they finally did it you know of course it was produced and distributed just as the Lynn drum machine came out with yes. the sample you know so that killed the 808 you know and i don't know if you've heard the story i don't know if it's true or not but uh, on on how the 808 got out and about i don't know if you've ever heard no, that the, the story goes is that there were these black kids in Detroit. I don't know. They were whatever, just meandering about, and they they stuck their heads in the trash bin, and there was like a twelve TR eight hundred eights. No, in this trash bin, it was right adjacent to a studio in Detroit, and they go, "What the fuck are these?" You know, and it's all packed. They just they took them and they took them home. They started pl playing them, right? And is this true? we don't know we but that's the best story we've heard so far that it, it, it it's not disputed um but I, there's no names attached to it so that's how it happened because it once you know all these studios got the trim the the Lynn drum machine the tr808 sounded like a toy you know so they kind of these black kids embraced it as their own and disseminated from detroit that's there's another story, but we found that that was debunked and untrue. Is there? I think we're talking about the snare sound and how unique it was with the 808. And the story on that was is that the engineers had gone to get some coffee and they left the the, the 808 they were working on. They spilled some tea on one of the circuit boards and it sounded different. And they were able to capture it after they <laughs> dumped the tea on it. And that that for 
25 years people believe that story and finally we found out a few years ago that that they made that up in japan they just thought that yeah was a i mean story. don't let the truth get in the way of a good story yeah, yeah right 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 um yeah you know it's so, interesting you should mention the lindrum because in, <clears> in, um uh, uh when i left the human league and we formed hem 17 mm -hmm. the lindrum had literally just come out and we had one of the first 10 in the uk i think Oh, okay. We fell in love with it immediately. Everyone did, right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 to be honest, I wish I still got it because uh, it, it's just still my favorite drum machine. Um, but the the interesting thing was, I kind of, you know, when you admire a piece of music for the technique or something, but you don't feel it i i that i felt like that about the the 808 okay i felt like it was a bit of a one-trick pony now the interesting thing is the lindrum could be used as a workhorse it could be it could adapt to lots of different styles of music but as soon as you put a tr808 into a track yeah it's got a very strong flavor yes now, however good the sounds are it it, it it it's like going oh fucking hell it's a 808 again you know you can, it's immediately recognizable it's a bit like the d the yamaha dx7 you know when it came out yeah. it was on everything it was i mean everybody was using the same patches the bells the brass the you know whatever well and you know it's so hard to program it so they they could take the presets pretty pretty readily yeah right. yeah well or more to the point you needed a lab coat to to, to yeah, yeah. like your own sounds um and that's coming from somebody who had modular synths from early days mm -hmm. um and so yeah however the 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 good news story at the end of it all is because it had such a strong flavor the 808 that's why it's lasted so long as a as a staple it's almost like um kind of blues players you know you can't imagine the blues being played really without a, a, a certain number of guitars that were ever invented you know it's mm -hmm. and, and i think the same is true for hip hop it's the same for you know a lot of rap music and etc and well yeah it's become a lingua franca you know yeah. anyway I mean, it's, not it's, to do with don but i just thought i'd discuss right. it well it's like uh uh i can't I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the on the model but a certain ham and organ is associated with oh b3 yeah. yeah yeah right yeah yeah, and, and Don never liked that organ. I, I, Don's ears didn't really like anything that complemented rock and roll. And I was, God, I was trying to get Don to compose some more rock and rollish type of stuff because I, I just wanted to hear what he would come up with. And I think the closest thing I came up with, some kind of semi-inspiring him, was the final credit music was uh, kind of rocky. But but he was so entrenched, you know, in in in, in the soul and the gospel and. and and I and I love Don doing the blues. I mean, oh, he was great at that. But yeah. the problem with that is Don was so positive and upbeat. He, he didn't have it right the room in his psyche to to push his positive nature to incorporate blues. So uh, you know, it was just kind of. <laughs> I'm a bit. That's my theory. That's my theory. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I can I can dig that. I mean, I am again. I admire the blues personally, but. I don't want to do it. Do you know what I mean? It's like okay. a, 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 as a kind of remote thing. Um, interestingly, 
I recently did an album with the, uh, uh, an, an organization called the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, who created the Doctor Who theme tune and lots of uh, kind of theme tunes for TV programs in the 70s and 80s. And um, they they reminded me a bit of, of his approach, which is they, they built some of their own instruments. It was mainly well, it's 90% electronic, everything they did. And there's another organization in the world that I work with called the, the, um, oh God, what are they called? The, the Synthesizer Chamber Orchestra. And they have a whole bunch of music stands with manuscripts on and they play, they play famous synthesizer tunes like a chamber orchestra. Oh, right? interesting. I like it. And, and so it's a little bit like what we're talking about, except instead of one man, it's, it's eight. Gotcha. So anyway, there's like all one, like, one, like one Don Lewis. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so I thought I'd mention that. So uh, where do we go from here? So, I mean, tell us, just illuminate for our listeners um, the multiple skill sets that he he had. He had. Well, they go beyond what's mentioned in the film, really. Uh, I'm Don could have been so great at so many things. Um, uh, it was this, this kind of a funny story. It kind of shows you how you get locked into a certain mode and you forget what offerings are available to you. But as I got deeper into the film, I realized I needed bridge music and atmospheric music underneath, you know, all the all the things you need to have. And <clears throat> where am I going to get that? And it's like, well, wait, where am I going to get it? I've got Dawn. <laughs> so that's where I'm going to get it. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I listed all these things I needed, like the style of the music, the instruments I felt would be appropriate. Obviously, you know, his input was more valuable than my ideas. And uh, they, so he and Julie came and stayed at my place for, you know, scheduled for like six days. So like day one goes by, day two goes by, we go out, we have scotches, we're having fun. We're just enjoying each other. And I'm, going hey you know uh we gotta we gotta get the soundtrack done i got a list of all these tunes all and, right. yeah. and i'll you know this one has to be 15 seconds i need 31 seconds here i need to you know and i need this to be expandable make this so i can cut it and shape it and, and he goes oh we'll be, we'll be fine and it was like the the day before they were going to leave i said don we got to do this he goes okay let's do it <laughs> so we sat down and uh i just told them the genres that I wanted for the, and I showed him the clips and on a fly, he just did it. I wow. said, I'm not three seconds of, of this. Like I wanted, I said, give me something that sort of like, sounds like the Peter Gunn theme. You know, I wanted to think of mobsters, you know, like from the, the union segment, you know, and the mobster era and then, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then, so. Uh, they did all this in a day, did he? Yeah, he did it all in a day. You know, there was some extra work that I needed later on, little piecemeal things, but the majority of it in, in just a few hours. I mean, it was it was nuts. He would just start playing it, and that was it. And he goes, how's that sound? What's that? Then he, he'd pick the voices, and i go, yeah, 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 trombone. Yeah, we need a trumpet there. And So, I mean, he would have been absolutely fantastic at scoring films. I mean, uh, he, he could do it in his sleep, you know? Yeah, was, yeah, yeah was crazy you know the other thing about um what was i going to say there was uh, 
not only one thing I had this fantasy at one time because I'm kind of a silent film buff, and I was I knew Don would be unbelievable. This remember in the early days of film where they'd actually have a live organist do the scoring for time, and Don would have was born to do that. I mean, he yeah. could have just sat down in an organ and just watched the film, maybe not even live, never seen the film before, and he'd figure out what to do during the film. You know, so he he was just so i mean just so talented and the thing is is everything was based i mean what one of the things that i wanted to stress i you know you have to come up with sort of a, a theme like if you're doing an album you know back in the old days you had thematic albums and stuff but at least within a song or some songs you're doing you come up with some sort of a theme and and the theme that i had in my head with this film was wasn't really music so much as it was connectivity you know not only from a technical aspect from a human aspect and that's what don was all about was connecting yeah. with people you know yes he was a genius at that because he loved it so much he had such a passion for meeting others you know and and i think that had much to do with his success you know was that openness yes and, so and how many how many people would you say no knew about him how how i can't it's hard for me to gauge how popular he was outside of, you know, when he moved to L.A. and, and San Francisco. No, no, but no, you know, because you got to realize he disappeared after the union deal. Right. And as a matter of fact, you know, we were in the streets of San Francisco, you know, when we were, we were shooting footage of him in front of the Hungry Tiger, you know, where he performed yeah. for a year. And. I, and then I had to get some other San Francisco shots. It was amazing how many people. And now he'd been gone from San Francisco for, I don't know, 20 years. And people go, you're Don Lewis. Wow. You're, that you're that guy. I hear the synthesizers every night coming from the, you know, from the Hungry Tide. They remember him. I couldn't believe that these people could remember him. But that's what a he was so iconic you know amongst those people there so it, you know if you take away denver and you take away san francisco during that period and then that little slice of time in los angeles where he shot to the top in terms of who he was working with he's he was unknown you know right right in fact uh you know rob pericelli of has, has a podcast with sound on sound magazine yeah yeah, yeah. He's going to be at the screening in London. He's going to be interviewing me and Julie doing a Q&A after the film. Oh. Anyway, he, he, he became one of our earliest, most enthusiastic advocates because he's an expert on synthesizers. And he's going, how come I don't know who this guy is? Yeah, so yeah. You're not alone. You know, people don't. I mean, unless you were someone who attended the NAMM show for many years, even if you're in the music business, you wouldn't have known who Don. Did he ever release any live albums or anything like that well see that's that's part of the problem with this recognition there was a fork in the road for don and it's when he was in la and he's you know working with you know quincy michael jackson the beach boys all that stuff so you know he fell in love with julie so she did not want to be in los angeles you know she didn't want to raise his kid the, the kids there she wanted to be the bay area yeah. so he had to make a decision it was like the family versus career and and but at the same time he loved the idea of going to san francisco because he could once for once focus on being the lead the 
his relationship with Leo, and he loved to perform live. So he was in heaven performing six nights a week. Mm-hmm. But I often wondered if he'd never met Julie and if he'd stayed in Los Angeles. And he got offers in San Francisco from big people, you know, the the Bay Area, you know, record, not moguls, but producers. Uh, but nothing came to fruition. And I, I think a lot of it had to do simply with what Don felt comfortable producing. In, he, right. he didn't think of doing a, you know, a three minute pop tune about a love story. I mean, that just wasn't his shtick. And so he wasn't inclined to work in a genre that was conducive to making money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, some people choose that kind of consultancy route and some, yeah, the natural performer. That's why I asked, you know, it, yeah. it's kind of like, it looks like it's the sort of thing you should have been doing. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the end, that was it. Cause he just loved people. That's so really around a, a, a packed crowd every night, you know? Amazing. And, um, so we are coming to the end of our okay. hour nearly. Um, this has been very enlightening. Can you just give me the solid gold plug for the film? Uh, when, when, and where, and how? Uh, okay. Well, uh, well, you know, it's uh, we're, let me. Can, so, uh, as as for now, the most immediate concern is, of course, I'm coming to London for the Q and A I was referring to. So. It'll be part of the the Dock and Roll Film Festival, so it's in London on the 27th of October. Fantastic. And then it'll be in Glasgow on October... uh, Oh, no, in November. I think it's November. Oh, November 12th. Right. Of course, that's where I'm at with this right now, is trying to recoup all my costs, obviously, but the underlying theme, which hopefully will also support my goal of recovering costs, is that as many people in the world see this film. Because I just, I, I maybe it's a bit egotistical, but I just think that um, everybody's life is a little less fulfilling if they've never known about Don Lewis. That's, uh, that's, a, great, that's a great quote. Okay, I've got a couple of silly, well, they're not silly questions, but simple questions at the end that I ask everybody who does the podcast. So, Okay, what's your favorite film? Just whatever pops into your head. Uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Uh, mine too. Uh, favorite <clears throat> TV show? A favorite TV show? Uh, um, I, uh, I'd say anything with Ricky Gervais in it is my favorite. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite book? My favorite God, that's that's a tough one. Uh, let, me, let me think about that for one. My favorite book. Um, I think one of my favorite books is something that some that that was published many years ago back in the seventies. It's called "The Last Great Days of California." It was a it was Kurt Gentry was the author. I think his name was and. I, it it was as have you ever heard of it? I don't know if you've ever. No, heard it sounds, sounds interesting though. It, it it's a book. Of, it which it was great. It's a book. The first half of the book is on California history. You know, right, right. right. Back to the gold rush days and the oils. And, but then what happens 
is there's the major earthquake, you know, and the San Andreas Fault finally falls apart and California falls into the ocean. And the second half is how that impacts the world not having California. Interesting. So, yeah. Interesting. So that, yeah. So uh, that's it's certainly, and then I'm a big Buster Keaton fan. So any book about Buster Keaton, I'm going to love that too. So right. I like I like biographies more than anything else. Yeah, I think I think I do. I'm um, a big fan of all that stuff. Um, uh, an alternative career if you've not been doing what you do now. Uh, probably more in the. I think a political cartoonist. That's something. That is a noble profession. We need more, need more of that shit nowadays. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the I was going to say Charles Schultz, the guy you know did peanuts. Oh, you yeah, know? yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And I, I wasn't that big of a peanuts fan, but I was a Charles Schultz fan, if that makes sense. And I found out his 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 whole career basically was get up in the morning, do a sit his cartoon, and then at noon he'd go play around the golf. And I go, that sounds like a great living. So that's anyway. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Okay, final question. What's your favorite synthesizer? I, I'm going to say it because it's, it be, it's become close to me is the DX7, you know. Okay. I'll let you off that one. It's not my favorite. I know. I know, I, I know it's cumbersome and I know it's bothersome and I, but. But it, I, is, I, but it is ubiquitous. Yes, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what an absolute pleasure it's been talking to you. Oh. Thank you so much. Same here, Martin. I just an honor. Anything we can do to get this story out to the world, uh, I'll do my best. That's all I can say. Thank you very much. And, you know, as many advocates as we can get, is we just deeply appreciate. I'll keep you in the loop on the progress of the film. Please do, please and, do. And where it's going, and I, you know, eventually, well, we'll see what happens. I'm working with hopefully broadcasters in terms of distribution around the country, outside of the United States. And I don't, I don't know, you know, Blu-rays and DVDs seem to be a thing of the past. So yeah. I'll probably come up with some sort of a streaming idea on how to. Yeah, get I think the um, it's it seems to me like the sort of thing that something like Sky Documentaries might go for, or yeah, Sky Arts, you know, um, yeah, they like these kind of uh, underdog stories, you know. Yeah, 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 and that's All right, man. well. Look, have a great day. Thank you. And uh, uh, and hope you never know. I might actually come down to the viewing if I got if I'm not working. Oh, that would be wonderful. That'd be All amazing. right, man. Have well, a great you, time. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great day, and it's an honor meeting. You. Thank you very much. Thank you, man. Cheers, man. He's obviously as passionate about the electronic music scene and the history. And also making sure this guy, Don Lewis, gets the correct credit. Unfortunately, he died, sadly, before um, before this could reach the public. But what a fine... His wife's helping uh, with uh, making sure that his legacy is being noted. And I'm sure that makes her... Helps the pain and, help, and, and makes her very happy that he's going to be recognised at last for the innovation that he created. How is everyone? Hope everyone's well. Please consider contributing to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com stroke electronically ours. Um, I really appreciate it. Keep it free and independent and advert free for everyone. And uh, or you can just email me on electronicallymartin at gmail.com. 
Another fantastic guest for you next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.